everybody. Welcome back to the Food Intelligence Podcast. My name is Miriam and I'm your host. I hope you all are keeping well and taking care of yourselves this October. Today, we're sharing the second installment of our food service series with our friends over at IFMA, the International Food Service Manufacturers Association. IFMA is the trade association serving food service manufacturers for 70 years and works to improve industry practices and relationships while equipping every food service manufacturer with the tools to navigate their future with confidence. Their mission is, of course, a shared passion of ours. We use AI, among other applications, of course, across the food industry to equip those in food service from manufacturers to distributors and beyond with the right tools to navigate the future. Today's topic is all about what AI means for people in food service and how AI can build and start stronger operator and manufacturer relationships. There's a bunch of good stuff in this episode, so enjoy and let us know if you have any questions. There are so many changes that happen in this world every single day, some of which have really a profound impact on the food and beverage industry and especially food service, and some of which are, you know, a little further away, but but impact it more and more. If we look at like we talk often in the States, right, the kind of this rise of, of AI, I guess it's really global, but increasingly I hear much more about it in kind of the English speaking worlds. We have the war in Ukraine, right? We have issues going on in Africa. Literally, I, I debated taking this webinar today from my house or from a shelter <laughs> of things going on in the Middle East. There's inflation that's happening in Australia, right? There's the issues going on in the Amazon. There's rises of challenges in China. I bring this up not to make you want to go run out and buy ice cream and cry in your room by yourself, but with the concept, right? Because that would be fun. But more this idea that like there's so, so, so much happening, all of which has this direct impact on, on food in some way. It means that as we walk through today, we have to figure out how in a world that changes so, so, so fast, can we stay up to date? Now, if we take kind of a step back, we talk a lot about how away from home, everyone says away from home, away from home, away from home. The question is, what is away from home? And ultimately, how did we get here? So if we look back to you know what I like to call my childhood of kind of the 80s and the early 90s, I often joke there was this restaurant called Swiss Chalet, which was around the corner from my house. It did rotisserie chicken. I ate there maybe like once a month. And that was like a big event, right? People didn't go out to eat anywhere near as much. You like went out for your birthday, right? It meant that you had lots of little local places. Yes, you definitely had national chains, but they didn't dominate the space in the same way. What happens is that into the 90s um, and into the 2000s, we start to see that convenience becomes key, right? You have more and more people entering the workforce. You have constant, you have this move to like people commuting, often consumers commuting much further to their jobs. Actually, I spent four years in college studying um, architecture and urban planning. We'll gladly talk to you about the rise of American suburbia and its impact on people's day-to-day -day life. But it meant that you had this boom of the chains. People were looking for drive-throughs. They were looking for quick, easy ways to get food. Now, the next step is that you see in kind of the early 2010s, the rise of clearly smartphones and its impact on away from home. We often talk about kind of the impact on what consumers eat, but it meant that now you had platforms, right? You had Yelp, you had TripAdvisor, you had consumers that were not only externally influenced by so much that was happening, right? You could find and, and, and understand much faster different restaurants, different cuisines, et cetera. But it also meant that you could kind of see into what more and more people were doing. Whereas, you know, you used to go out and I would eat my rotisserie chicken and no one other than the 
five other people in my family knew about it. Nowadays, you could post about that. You could let somebody know. It takes it even a step further, actually, when you bring in delivery. Why delivery matters, and we'll talk a lot about delivery today, is that delivery opened up the American palette. It opened up really the world palette to so many different cultures and customs of cuisine. It meant that historically, right, I grew up eating a lot of lox and bagels, <laughs> as all great New Yorkers do. It meant that you could all of a sudden have sushi, right? You could have sushi delivered to your door. You could try something. You didn't have to commit to going out to it. You could say, hey, I didn't know Ethiopian food could look this good. Let's give it a shot, right? It meant that people were now bringing into their home significantly more and newer ideas that otherwise they were limited to. Of course, we bring in COVID, right? COVID then says, hey, what is now the relationship with away from home? You have no touch. You have increasingly nowadays, right, all new drive-through spaces. It forced this entire industry to say, like, what do we do? And it gets us to where we are today. It gets us to this world that's now so many things are happening, right? And it's increasingly impacted by this world of AI. That means that the day of go out to your chicken rotisserie dinner no longer applies. People are, I think it's like 6,000 different screens, six to 9,000 different screens we consume a day on our phone. That's ridiculous when you think about it. It means that there is so much automation that's happening. There's so many ways that we can better understand consumers. It's constantly, constantly changing. The main point here is that data is literally everywhere. There is so much data. I think there's a Forbes statistic recently that like, what is it, 90% of the world's data or something was made in the past two years, right? There is so, so, so much data out there. We used to talk about organizations that didn't have data, right? Nowadays, we talk about like, what do you do with all of this data? And I'm sure that's an issue each of you are experiencing. The challenge here, and we often talk about fast-moving consumer data. Fast-moving consumer data, I think it's in many ways based off from those of you who are used to the term FMCG, right? Fast-moving consumer goods, which is really a UK and rest of world term for CPG. But fast-moving consumer data has created a lot of different challenges. It's not just, hey, here's the, you know, well, I'm really going to reference the Swiss chalet chicken place and like relive my uh, my partial trial of traumas. But um, thank you for joining me on this therapy experience. But it means that, you know, how we used to keep up with this industry doesn't work, right? A lot of the methods we've used, they don't really change, right? And if they do change, they're incredibly slow to, to do so. It means as well that because there are so many new trends, and by the way, some of those trends are starting in food service. Some of them start other places. Look at things like air fryers. Air frying is a trend that started very much in the home space that you're now starting to see in a way from home. It means that because it changes so fast, it can be hard to activate on those, tr on, on those trends. It becomes nearly impossible to understand consumers on any scalable level. There are what, seven and a half billion people in the world today, Miriam? There's 340 million Batesers, I like to call us, because there's other people in the Americas, right? How do you understand 340 million people every single day? Add on top of that, once again, that it can often be a challenge to make that connection to food service. Because the food service space is so, so, so fractured, it means that you can't just go to a bunch of retailers and see what people buy. It's like, how do we get to consumers? How do we get to guests in the food service space?
Pam, I would love to, I would love to pop in here with just a quick question. I don't want to interrupt your flow, but something that we're often asked when we talk about this, about FMCD, I know that you'll cover this as we keep going, but um, how do we identify in this really fractured landscape in food service and just generally in food and beverage where there's so much data, there's so much change, how can we identify uh, a trend versus a fad, right? Um, when we think about, especially you know, client relationships, which is the focus of today's webinar, when we come and we want to explain something that's going on, how can we really understand that trend versus fad dynamic? Awesome. Yeah. There's so many ways to do it. And I know we'll look at, at, at many of them in a minute. One thing I, I would say, by the way, that we we sometimes discuss, but I think needs to, to, to be a, a front burner discussion here is a lot of it comes down also to the data that you look at. Often we talk, like I know, at least at TasteWise, with, with clients about different types of data sources and understanding what is the right data source to answer the question that I'm looking to understand. Are there certain data sources that are great for fads? And are there certain data sources that are great for trends? And you should be talking with whatever vendor you use about how do we make sure to distinguish between those? Because if you try to use fads as trends, you, you're gonna break yourself because every three weeks you're gonna come up with something new. And well, nobody is eating mini pancakes for breakfast anymore. <laughs> now, if we take this kind of a, a step further, right? <clears throat> What we want to ask is like, what does innovation look like today in this space? And we find that there's kind of a few different sides of innovation. One side is manufacturer-led innovation. I was at, at IFMA back in, um, in Tampa, I think it was in late February, early March. I don't remember who it was, but they gave a statistic that talked about the percentage of operators that feel that their innovation comes from their manufacturer partners. And everyone's like, it's, you know, 80% or 90%. And I think the answer was maybe like, it was like 20, right? It meant that we have some innovation that today comes from manufacturers. And I think we're going to look at this a bit more in a minute, right? Manufacturers show up with new products and they try to drive innovation based on what's really good for their, their business. Now, it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Often, you're right, they are for-profit businesses. They need to drive the, the, their innovation that way. Um, but it really puts the manufacturer and their mindset at the center of, of the innovation cycle. It makes it sometimes hard to do that because you're multiple steps away from the person who's actually going to eat your product. Most people don't just eat ketchup by themselves. How do we innovate with ketchup for a product for the operator? Now, the other type, right, that we see is kind of this operator-led innovation. It's where you have a chef or a, or a manager or an owner who is sitting there and saying, okay, what do I have on my menu? What am I hearing from the word on the street? What is right for, for my establishment? Now, I sometimes think that might be easier when you're an independent because you tend to be a bit more in tune to what's happening in your neighborhood, especially as you work your way up the, the chain it becomes much, much harder, right? Can McDonald's really understand, once again, 340 million United Statesers? Probably not so well. Now, what we'd ideally all like to do would be to find a way where we can collaborate, right? Where we can be those partners, where the manufacturer can drive innovation and what's good for them, and where the operator can sit there and drive it together. I think both the manufacturers and the operators on this call will agree, like, you need each other. You need each other for success. And the question is, how do we make that happen? 
we talk increasingly about what we call the move from order takers, right, to the trusted advisor. And often when I speak to teams, unless you're a national accounts team, right, and you're like managing the subway relationship, a lot of times it's like, we just accept orders, contact the number at the bottom. My, and I say this as, as a major takeaway of this, of this uh, session, I think going forward into the end of 2023 and 2024 and 2025, I, I would love to see a world in which manufacturers take that back, right? Where they don't sit there and outsource the vast majority of the, the sales that they do, where they don't just become order takers and shippers, they become people that at scale can become that trusted advisor. Now you're probably thinking, Sam, this is crazy. We aren't going to be able to do this. Um, I remind you that people used to think delivering movies back to black back to Blockbuster was a great strategy, and here we are today, <laughs> right? So stick with us here for a bit. What exists in, in what is out there, right? When we talk about data, there's trends that are happening in home cooking, right? There's social data a lot of teams look at. There's different drivers that make people decide not only what to buy, but what to eat. There's a lot of sentiment, right? Like, do I love this? Do I hate this? Oh, many, many teams, I think everyone in some way is trying to look at menu data. There's bestseller data, which we're going to focus on a lot here as well. Um, and there's also, of course, regional trends, right? What is happening in my neighborhood? That's what exists out there today. Now, the second question is, based on all of that, right, what actually are we trying to surface? What, like, what do we want to know? Now, what we want to know are things, right, like, what are menu gaps? Where can I have a new innovation opportunity? Where are there sales opportunities? What's happening at chains versus single locations? Where are there changes in price? What is that new innovation that's on the horizon? So we put this in an arrow because we think it says there's a, there's a lot of data out there, right? There's both from the manufacturer and the operator side, so many different sources of data and so many aspects that impact this industry. We then try to seek like, okay, what information from this all can we surface? And it takes us to the last point of ultimately, what actually can we, we offer, right? Now, what we can offer with this is in using AI, and I say using AI because to do this once again at scale, to be a trusted advisor for the, I hope tens of thousands, if not more operators that buy from you every day, to be a trusted advisor, will require technology to do it at scale. It will let you say what is happening actually in, in the market, not just what are a few players doing. How can I deeply understand the, uh, the category that I, that I live in? How can I create new menus? We're gonna look at actually amazing ways that you can use AI and bestsellers to do this. How can I create new concepts, right? I often joke, nothing personal to McDonald's. It took McDonald's 30 years to bring us spicy chicken nuggets, right? Everyone's like, Wendy's just came out with like a strawberry shake. Thank you for that, right? But like, there's so much more that we can do with this industry and consumers are looking for it, right? There are so many ways that we can use this data to enable our sales teams. How do we give the right rep the right information so that he or she or they can go out and actually win that business or expand the relationship they have, right? And how can we measure? How can we report back to our management, to our leaders and say, this is how we're doing. If we can move from order takers to trusted advisors, it allows us to be, right, that partner. It allows us to be the partner that an operator can rely on if we're talking from the manufacturer side, and it can allow us to be better operators, right? It can allow us to have better trust and better faith from our customers to continue to come back.
I want us to take a moment to focus on bestsellers today. Now, when we talk about bestsellers, there's a lot of questions of like, what even are bestsellers, right? Like, what is this term? I know that we don't necessarily have like a, a chat section, so you can't necessarily put it in there. Today, about 60% of consumers in the United States order something from delivery at least once a week, okay? Um, probably for many of you, that's actually a lot more, right? Most of my friends, it's like, oh, I'm too lazy to cook, delivery. Delivery tells us so, so, so much. What people get on delivery can tell us not only what people purchase, right? But also what is their behavior? Now, when we talk about purchase, to me, the holy grail in this industry, and I, I'm asked this all the time is, what actually do people buy in food service? If we know that in retail, right? We know that somebody buys chicken breast tomatoes and avocados and they walk out the door. The question here is like, what actually do people purchase in retail? What bestseller data is, is bestseller data is taking what on the delivery platforms is listed in the top section as a bestseller. These are based on the algorithms, right? From DoorDash and Uber Eats, Grubhub, Deliveroo, Just Eats. If you're working international, by the way, this works in, in many markets. Take it France, the UK, India, Australia, Germany, you know, Mexico as well, Brazil, Canada, which was officially international, but you know, neighbors at heart. What it is, is it says, hey, this is actually what somebody is buying at that specific location. We're gonna look here today to see how that impacts what we understand from consumer trends, how that lets us drill down into different ingredients, how it lets us create new and better brand partnerships and collaboration, how it can help us create new menu ideas, how we can position ourselves better and how we can optimize pricing. So I want us to kind of use chicken today as an example. I say this as someone who clearly ate a lot of chicken in my childhood, and has been a vegetarian for the past six years. <laughs> now, when we talk about bestseller data and what bestseller data can, can do for us, across all of the United States, all 50 states, we're looking, when we talk bestseller dishes with chicken, there are 56,462,794. Now, that means that about 35% of bestsellers on restaurant menus, on restaurant delivery menus, contain chicken. Now. For those of you who are thinking, I should pressure test this against what I have in my own in my own solutions. You have to make sure that if you want to understand like how this compares, you need to compare this number, not to the number of restaurants that just have chicken dishes or the number of chicken dishes that exist, but what actually are the number of best-selling dishes. Once again, this is gonna tell us a lot about like what actually people purchase. That means that like people purchase a lot of chicken in restaurants. Now, I know that for an example, you're like, well, duh, Sam, people purchase chicken. But think if you could drill down further, right? Think if you could do this with any ingredient. Picture if you could figure out, hey, are people, you know, are there more dishes that have gochujang or sriracha? Think of those types of questions. Like imagine that as we walk through this today. If we can drill down to all of those different ingredients, um, we can actually get a very much be a better understanding of really what people purchase and what are their behaviors. Now, Consumer trends. We talk a lot about consumer trends, about consumer needs. There are many ways that we can go about understanding this. Historically, I think we've focused a lot by asking people questions, right? We stand there and we say, what do you think, Sam Newman? My answer is always, if you ask me how many, like, you know, do I like or love ranch dressing? I will tell you that I love ranch dressing. 
I passionately love ranch dressing. The last time I had ranch dressing, though, was probably about 10 years ago. Um, I spent almost half my life in the Middle East, and contrary to popular belief, warm, creamy ranch dressing, when it is 107 degrees outside, is the most unappetizing thing you could possibly eat, especially in the sun. It means that a lot of the surveys and the focus groups we use to understand consumer trends don't really hold up. We have to observe what people do and best sellers can help us do that. So if we take chicken, what we can see is that chicken is most pro predominantly associated with Mexican cuisine when it comes to best sellers on menus, right? Let's ask this, among the chicken best sellers, right? How are they most commonly prepared? This will start to say, hey, what actually do consumers look for? How do consumers want to be eating chicken in a restaurant? In this case, it's no surprise fried. This is the United States after all, right? Grilled as well as toasted. And that the most common size when we talk best sellers are actually pork, right? People get chicken and some type of pork together. Onions, tomatoes, lettuce, and rice. Now, within the framework of Mexican cuisine, once again, this is like, of course, but we can discern a lot from this, right? It would be a really amazing way to see, okay, within best sellers, are we seeing an increase of perhaps certain types of, of dietary mentions or certain type of nutritional function mentions that are happening, right? Do consumers in, or do menus increasingly mention maybe different experiences? We can gain a lot from consumer trends that actually reflect, here's what they're buying in that restaurant, here's their behavior. Now, of course, that's only one part of the picture. We need to look at other ways to understand consumers when they actually sit in restaurants. At TasteWise, we talk a lot about using social data to do this. Um, but note that from bestsellers, you can drill very deeply into a lot of the why um, and get just a much more accurate understanding of those consumer trends. Yeah, Sam, I was actually just going to pop in and, and reinforce that point that you can buttress this with any number of, of data sources outside of bestsellers, right? Bestsellers is just one way to understand kind of consumer behavior within that purchasing moment. Um, but the why is really what matters. Going back to that question we talked about at the start, right, of a fad versus a trend, the consumer why is really that kind of golden chalice that we need to have in hand. Um, and bestsellers is an excellent way to get there, but you could also be looking at, you know, and I know we're going to talk about this, but geographical insights and, um, you know, social media data and all sorts of things to understand outside of even food service, how are consumers relating to these trends? What does it mean for a consumer to be interested in fried chicken, right? Like what are the, the pairings and the contexts and the dining occasions and all of that? So it's all part of a larger story that I think bestsellers is a great entryway into. Awesome. Now, let's say we can now take all of that information, right? And we bring it all together. And what we can do is then use that bestseller data. We can use those consumer trends that we're finding both on the operator menu and, and in other places. And we can take those best-selling ingredients and we can make new things, um, right? I come back once again to the McDonald's spicy chicken nuggets, right? The question is how can I potentially take some of the top ingredients or some of the fastest growing ingredients or fastest trending ingredients in bestsellers and make something different? Um, to me, this, yeah, when we talk other holy grails, this is it because what it allows you to do is take that behavioral data and allows you to take that really as close to purchase data as we can get and meld it together into something great, right? You're no longer just getting Oreo, you're getting Oreo Kit Kat and M&Ms like boom, all together. So that's one way that you can use bestsellers to say, how can I inspire uh, a new dish? Now, you can actually take it a step further. 
it's here's where I want to bring in kind of the joys and 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 the fun of 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 AI, right? Because if we continue with the chicken example, we can start to see right here spicy chicken. We can say, how can we better plan the menu? How can we take what are some of those best sellers and refine that offer or refine that offer even more? What we can do is actually use AI to do this. So what we thought to do is to say, how can we take, let's say, what was it, chicken, lemon, and basil, and say, create new ideas for us. Historically, and, and I see this with clients every day, everyone has looked at kind of the national chains, right? We tend to get national chain data. By the way, very, very important. If you don't have independence, and I say it as an independent restaurant's data, you should explore it. That's where trends begin, right? And it's important because not only do that, is that where trends begin, it's, it's a significant portion of the market still today, but it's also where you can drive so many insights from. So if we use AI, what we can say is, hey, let's take lemon, chicken, and basil, and let's come up with brand new ideas, and let's do this at the click of a button. Now, if we go back to being great trusted partners and advisors, why this matters is that this is where it starts to scale. This is where everyone has the resource, right? You manage the relationship with Panera Bread, you go into their ideation sessions, you bring data about what's happening at competitive chains, you maybe look at some of the larger regional chains, you put your resource there because the bang for the buck tends to be the, the biggest. But if we look at something like this, picture if you could sit there, and we'll explore this in, in, in multiple ways. Imagine walking into any independent that you work with and basically saying to them hey i see you have you know chicken and basil and lemon on the menu have you thought to come out with like what are some of the examples here a slow cooked lemon basil with berry mustard right let's say you just launched a new mustard picture being able to take what you already sell them to take their menu to combine it with what you want to sell them and create new ideas and do that at scale I was just going to add that um, it's also, you know, going back to the the kind of call to the question here that we're working with around consumer or developing customer relationships, right? You're able to bring white glove service to these small and independent restaurants that you may not have been able to do before because resource allocation just didn't make sense, right? It made much more sense if you had to manually come up with a bunch of different dishes for your, let's say, Panera relationship, but not so much for the, what was it, Sam's Swedish chicken chalet or wherever you see. Yeah, so if you're able to bring this kind of level of creativity and personalization to these smaller scale accounts, that's, I mean, with basically the click of a button, that's a win-win for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to see this grow, by the way. I'm excited to watch this take off. I'm excited to watch. This might be slightly more for manufacturers that have larger data teams initially, but to say, how can we, yeah, how can we take the menu data of our clients how can we integrate AI into that and create new ideas so that we can constantly come up with something new? It leads us actually to the next point is you can create amazing, awesome, terrific ideas. The question is, how do we price it? I know that pricing is a huge challenge for everyone. It's a challenge for operators. It's a ch challenge for manufacturers. It's a challenge for the distribution companies, right? Like how much do I charge? Now, one thing that we should first start by taking into account is is take something like best is take best sellers is there a advantage a financial advantage shall we say of trying to clearly push and drive those best sellers is there a way that we could potentially charge more 
So what we did was we said the average price of a chicken dish, by the way, on a bestseller is $12.80. The average price of a chicken dish on all restaurants, right, on all normal on-site menus is $12.20. We found that anywhere between about 5 to 10%, there's, an, there's a 5 to 10% increase in price when it comes to an item on a bestseller. Now, one of the questions that you might be asking, right, is like, how can we get ourselves to be a bestseller? There are many ways that we can look into that. As someone who worked for a while with mobile app developers and a lot of work with the App Store and the Google Play Store, happy to discuss different methods and strategies for, I don't really know what the term would be because it's not search engine optimization. It's like delivery platform results optimization. Happy to take that offline with anyone who wants to nerd out with me on that. The point here is that the price that you can that that restaurant that operators can charge for bestsellers can be can be higher, right? It has that gold star. It kind of has that uh, you know approval from consumers. We gave as well an example of say something like 90210, where the um, the average price of a chicken dish, right, is like 20 bucks. It means that like if you can get an extra five to 10 percent by driving a bestseller, you're going to be making significantly more profit for 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 yourself and for your partners. Now, yeah, just to clarify, 90210 the zip code, right, Beverly Hills? As opposed to? I just said 90210, but I wanted to make sure everyone understood we were talking about the zip code. <laughs> but yes, 90210, the, the zip code in, in California and the United States and in North America. Now, there you go. Now, if we take this a step further, by the way, one of the things that we often talk about is what we increasingly call local sales enablement. As I've spoken to more and more teams over the years, and I think especially when we look at a lot of the independents, right, that exist today, pricing is such a challenge for a whole array of reasons. You go into three Starbucks in New York on the same street and the price is completely different, right? If any one of you is thinking to yourself, I don't have a problem either pricing my own menu or working with my partners to price their menu, please come talk to me and I will show you why that's not true. <laughs> we need to create a very, very localized approach to managing pricing. Now, if you're a manufacturer, once again, a lot of times I speak to teams and they go, well, that you know, we don't really venture into that space. You should start, you should absolutely start, right? At the end of the day, if you're an account manager, you're somebody in sales, you're someone in customer success, if, if every additional penny that an operator can make matters. It means that if you can be the one to navigate the pricing conversation, even if you're the one selling, you know, you just sell ranch dressing. If you can be the one to say, hey, this is our innovation with the ranch dressing, and this is how much it should cost at each location that you have, I can guarantee you that your partner will come back to you. If you're the operator, this matters even more, right? Like these are literally your profit margins. So, we can do this in multiple ways. We can look at menu data as a whole. We can look once again at those best sellers. We can say what is happening within a three or a five mile radius of a specific location. In this case, we took a slight detour. We decided to talk about mozzarella sticks because if there's one thing I really, really miss food wise about living in the United States is deep fried cheese. Well done, whoever created that one, <laughs> right? What we could do is say, hey, I'm selling mozzarella sticks, let's say, into a restaurant. How much do mozzarella sticks cost within that three-mile radius? What is happening within the, the area in which a specific location is, is, is based so that I can get the right price on the menu? It takes us to the, to the last point, and then I I'm, I'm, will summarize this and open this up for questions. How can we use this to have 
competitive insights, right? If we've understood what the best sellers are in a specific region, it can be a zip code, it can be a city, it can be a state. If we've come up and understood, here's why consumers are, are eating certain things. If we've created amazing menu items, if we've done it at scale, if we've properly priced it, we wanna make sure like what's happening around me, right? What are perhaps the other best sellers that I'm unaware of? Maybe, right, and I know everyone, every one of us has probably those few restaurants that we go to in, a, in, our, in our neighborhood or in our town, um, and we all know, hey, wow, this is what they do great, right? Um, there's a restaurant nearby me that has this, like, spicy buffalo chicken cream cheesy dip, and, like, it is heaven. I'm gonna sit here for a second and just think of that. And I hope you all think of the food you love as well, right? Every, Miriam's like, okay, Sam, it's dinner. Everyone knows kind of the few things in their area that everybody loves, right? But like, and we can know now better, are they actually selling, right? Are these actually my competitors' best sellers? Should I bring them onto my menu, right? Am I properly priced? If mozzarella sticks are the best seller at a restaurant a mile up the street, what can I do about mine? Perhaps my mozzarella sticks are overpriced, right? Perhaps theirs are $3.99 and mine are $5.99. Perhaps mine don't appear in the right section of the menu, right? There's so many different things that we can do based on what is happening in your area. And I once again break this down. I break this down. If you're a manufacturer, you need to be having these conversations with your partners. You need to be helping them strategize across everyone of their of their of your um, um, operator partner locations, you need to be helping them strategize. What what is going on? Where should this be? What should your go to market strategy be? And if you're the operator, whether it be an independent or a national chain, even you know a lot of times teams have pricing teams. Bring them into this discussion and use this type of data to have a much more effective approach. Sam, I think just, just for a quick question that has come to mind for me, just because we talked about this at the top, can you comment a little bit on why, like how menu gaps, for example, here could be really low hanging fruit. So for example, like if, if you know that your menu offers, let's say a breakfast sandwich, right? And you know that that's best selling and you know that breakfast sandwiches in your, you know, however big of a radius you want to say is, is a huge deal and people are really craving it. How AI can help you, let's say, understand that you may have listed your breakfast sandwich on DoorDash, but you completely forgot to put it on Grubhub. Right? Like, why yep. is that? How is that interesting here, too? Can you maybe just like a sentence or two on that? Because I think it's interesting. Yeah, 100%. For those of you, by the way, that aren't necessarily familiar with menu gaps, I, ho I hope everyone is. A menu gap would be if you work with, say, Uber Eats, Grubhub, and DoorDash, but you're only selling, let's say, mozzarella sticks on Uber Eats, you don't have them on Grubhub and DoorDash. Now, it's, I think historically, a lot of this has been driven by the brand, by the way, right? It means that Pepsi and Coke and Impossible and beyond try to reach out to all of their partners and say, how can we make sure that our brand appears on all of our menus, right? That's clearly in their interest to make that happen. And that's the operator make, you know, sells more as well. If you're the operator, by the way, I think this is something that you can start to really take back yourself, um, whether it be a branded item or not. You want to make sure that like, okay, if I've got, you know, go with breakfast sandwiches or mozzarella sticks, is this listed across every one of my delivery platforms? Can somebody actually buy mozzarella sticks everywhere they go? It'd be a shame if mozzarella sticks are a bestseller on Uber Eats, and yet anyone who comes to buy them at, at DoorDash can't, 
right? So like, I understand, especially if you're an independent restaurant, resources are limited. You can't always do this so quickly, but like give yourself a, you know, give, give yourself a bit of a review a couple times a year. Make sure that everything is properly listed on those menus. If you're a larger chain, check. Okay, here's all of my best sellers. Here's what I know I'm selling the most of. Let's make sure it's actually listed every place and AI can do that. You could come into a, a, a system and say, hey, show me all of, you know, I'm Subway, show me every Subway and make sure that, yeah, breakfast sandwiches are across every delivery platform we work with. And don't, by the way, give me the excuse, because I love a good excuse of, well, you know, we're, we're franchised or whatever, right? Like we don't necessarily have a close relationship with our partners. Um, if that's your excuse, talk to me and we'll figure out ways to get you in closer relationship with the people who control directly where all your money is made. Now, a few key takeaways. <laughs> that was the New York, I was raised by New York accountants. So everything in my mind is, is that way. Um, <laughs> that's the locks and bagels. But a few kind of key takeaways. And I, I know we looked today, we kind of looked at bestsellers as, as, a, as a, a source to answering and kind of exploring lots of different questions. But I think it, 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 it comes down to this idea of with bestseller data, we can get as close to that point of sale as possible. We can really actually see what's being sold at each individual location. And I say that because it could be an independent or it could be each individual location of, say, you know, uh, of a competitor's chain. We can gain so much insight out from, from bestsellers about the why, right? What is the behavior that they that that consumers are looking for and that they're they're showing? How can we observe that, right? How can we look at the market as 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 an overall view? How can we understand where there's opportunities for new menu items to create those new types of partnerships to drive that innovation because that's ultimately what we want to do to really make those decisions with which much stronger data and ultimately optimize the amount of money that you make because, Unless there's nonprofits on this call, I think that's at the end of the day, the, the goal that you're all trying to achieve. Adding an extra penny here or there to make sure that you're price ready for, for the market can literally be the, the make it or break it to, to businesses today.